You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore in my hometown of Amsterdam, New York, uh, sitting uh, in the historic Sanford Mansion, which is the City Hall, where Historic Amsterdam League has just heard a tremendous uh, presentation by President James Madison about a trip that President uh, Madison and uh, President Jefferson and I think a couple of other guys uh, made here in the upstate uh, of New York. It's a pleasure to have uh, President Madison with us. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing very well, and I'm reminiscing tonight. Oh, that's good. When was this uh, trip that you uh, took through the upstate? Well, this particular trip that I am discussing is in 1791 when Mr. Jefferson was the Secretary of the State and I was a congressman. Mm-hmm. And why did you do it? You, uh, again, spoke to this group and you were questioned. I don't know if somebody asked you this directly, but it was like, you know, did you get the Congress to pay for this or what? What was this, some sort of junket? What were you guys doing up here? Well, as I said to my brother Ambrose, that I needed a a trip to get away from the political fervor that was going on in Philadelphia. And Mr. Jefferson and I, uh, being good friends, you see, uh, decided that we would take this trip forever uh, together uh, simply for health, recreation, and curiosity. Yes, health, recreation, and curiosity. You also said that uh, Jefferson's uh, suffered from migraines and thought this might relieve them. And it did. He returned uh, to Philadelphia with uh, much relief, which probably started right back up (laughs) as soon as he got into the political fray. And for uh, myself, who has been um, troubled with bilious fits throughout my life, uh, and I did come back with a sense of renewed vigor. Uh, A bad stomach, you mean? A bad stomach, yes, indeed, sir. I, I shouldn't bring this up because this actually happened after you're long deceased, but the uh, man who was known for living in this mansion, Stephen Sanford, had uh, similar problems, went to his doctor, and he suggested that he should take up a hobby, so he took up horse racing and founded the famous Sanford Stables. But again, I shouldn't tell you this because this is all in the future, in the 1890s, 1900s, and so forth. Well, I can tell you that uh, Mr. Thornton and I owned a racehorse together named Wild Medley. And so the horse racing scene in Washington City was quite uh, fervent and uh, exciting, and I personally enjoyed it very much. But uh, the uh, Historic Amsterdam League folks, and they had a packed house. I, uh, I think it was about well over 50 people uh, filling the Common Council Chamber of, uh, of Amsterdam. I haven't seen so many people there, you know, since some city union was asking for a raise and all the firefighters and the police force would, would come in. But you had a, had a big crowd. And uh, everyone, one man mentioned how, I mean, you just uh, speak of this uh, from your heart. You don't uh, use what we have today, uh, something like a teleprompter. Notes. Yes, the style of entertainment that we're describing is called first-person interpretation. And uh, if I was speaking as my agent, Kyle Jenks, I would say it was acting on steroids. Uh, I remember a movie, Deliverance, uh, uh, with Burt Reynolds and... Um, Oh, help me out, Mr. Cudmore there. Well, uh, anyway, there was a couple of method actors. Oh, John Voight is a method actor. Okay. Uh, D- Daniel Day-Lewis is a method actor. Um, and two, Ron, Ronnie Cox, he came from the theater. And the other gentleman I can't remember, he came from the theater. And they're all method actors, which means that once they're in persona and character, you can't get them out. Mm-hmm. And I, this is on steroids because there's never the word cut. 
You know, you, you have to continue to sort of embody this, this person uh, for the entire length of your presentation. At this point, and you told me the year, but I've forgotten it already, um, you and, and Jefferson are, are allied in, I believe it was called the Democratic Republican Party, and you would frequently refer to it as Republican, but it's not the Republicans as will come with Abe Lincoln and, and so forth later on. But uh, you guys are kind of arrayed against the uh, Federalists, although at one point you and uh, Federalists, for example, Alexander Hamilton, were, were great buddies. You put out the Federalist papers together. Yes, and that was one thing that I brought up was that I never intended to have any kind of split with Mr. Hamilton. I supported him in his post as the Secretary of the Treasury as his choice under Washington, but uh, partisan politics did rear its ugly head, and with the election of Jefferson in 1800, it was a watershed moment in our political history. But I recall, again, on this trip you took through New York State and, and into uh, New England, you arrive in uh, New York City, and it seems to me you met uh, some real staunch Federalist there who's, whose name escapes me. Well, maybe it wasn't New York City. I, I know of a place where you did run into to one. When you got farther upstate, up the Hudson Valley, you ran into Robert Livingston? Yes, but Robert Livingston at the time was really a, of like mind. The Livingston as a family clan, so to speak, were mixed. You know, they originally started very Federalist, but they became rather Clintonian. Uh, you know, Governor Clinton is is famous to be the longest-running governor in, uh, in New York State, and he was Jefferson's vice president and carried over into my term as well. Also, you explained that back then, um, much as maybe we have today, uh, there's a, a partisan press uh, that exists. And you uh, talked about getting to Albany, and you said that one of the newspapers in Albany, and I can't remember which, uh, favored you and Jefferson, and the other uh, favored the Federalists. Who, who was who? Which was which up in Albany in terms of the newspapers? There was two papers in Albany called uh, the Albany Gazette and the Albany Register. The Albany Gazette was Federalist in nature, and the Albany Register was Republican in nature. Did you like Albany? We loved Albany, yes. Um, you also, oh, you met, um, or met with General Schuyler, right? That's Philip Schuyler, right? And what happened there? Uh, he received us very cordially and uh, offered the services of his son when we traveled up to Saratoga. And they, uh, John Schuyler gave us a major tour of the entire area. Right. In fact, I gather that you and Jefferson in particular loved Lake George. We did. Uh, Jefferson wrote a letter to his youngest daughter, Polly, on the back of a piece of birch bark. And he said, this is without question the most beautiful water I ever saw. Really? And you, and you fish there? Wonderful fish, yes. Uh, Jefferson is quite a fisherman anyway, so he could compare the fishing from Lake George to Lake Champlain, and he thought the fish from Lake George were much superior than that of Lake Champlain. Yes, and in, in general, you didn't spend that long at Lake Champlain, and you kind of decamped for uh, what we would call New England? Yes, and that's where we met all the Federalists, especially in Connecticut. That's where we met uh, some, some staunch Federalist points of view, uh, we traveled 30 miles a day on land. Uh, Jefferson was back in Philadelphia by June the 20th, and that was pretty much one-month turnaround. Mm -hmm. Well, when you got to New England, you were able to what uh, go by water down the Connecticut River? Uh, we, we traveled by land, but alongside the Connecticut River, yes. Okay. 
But then when you got to Long Island Sound, uh, Jefferson prevailed on you to get into a boat, which isn't one of your favorite modes of transportation. Yes, I told him that it would be unfriendly to a singular disease of my constitution, of which you referred to earlier, the stomach troubles. Like he had wanted you to go to Europe with him, but you you never did. You never, have you ever been to France or England? Or? No, and ironically, none of the secretaries of state um, up through my presidency have been overseas. Well, it's a little more difficult, I guess, than it is in our modern uh, modern day. Uh, so you, you got back to New York, and eventually this uh, tour was uh, over. And again, this was 1791? 1791, right in the middle of the summer. And then we, uh, you, you skipped ahead in your presentation to uh, your, I don't know if it was your f- first inauguration. It was the first time that you served as president. You were the fourth president of the, of the country. And, you, and I guess what sticks in my mind or my takeaway, as we say these days, is that your inauguration marked the first inaugural ball. It was the first inaugural ball that was held in Washington City as our permanent capital, and it was the first inaugural ball that was held on inaugural day. But uh, Washington had an inaugural ball, and Adams had an inaugural ball, although Jefferson did not. Uh, he, he thought that was too monarchical. Exactly. He, he, he combined two words and called Federalists monocrats, which is a combination of monarchy and aristocrat. But the inaugural ball when you were elected, and by then you're married to the famous uh, Dolly Madison, right? Indeed. I believe uh, much of the attention was uh, adorned on her, and she looked marvelous. And you told uh, several anecdotes about the, uh, about the dance, uh, one of the anecdotes having to do with dancing. I don't know, for some reason, uh, some big shots were prevailing on you and your wife to dance. And the, the point was, and that just kind of surprised me, your wife didn't dance. And what's the explanation for that? I mean, she's known as this great hostess and party giver. That's true. That's one thing that she physically cannot do very well because of knee troubles that she has. But also her Quaker background discouraged it, and she never learned. Huh. But uh, she knew how to have a good time. Oh, more than that. She knew how to masterfully maneuver a crowd. Uh, For example, this is something that I did not mention in the uh, presentation upstairs, but she sat quite strategically between the French minister and the English minister at that (laughs) dinner. Now, was it the French minister that was wearing all the medals and things, or was that somebody else? Yes, the French minister was the one that uh, escorted her into the ball. Now, the ball, you know, it was a lot of uh, fun and, and uh, friviality, as they say. But you and Dolly had had a really busy day, so you guys left. Oh, it was such a, it was a tiring day. And you know that uh, my stamina isn't always that good. So if, <laughs> if we were at a Democratic anointing or a, or a royal wedding, it's, it, was, it was, you know, started at dawn with, with uh, musket fire and cannon and then martial music. And then the official ceremony went to an open house and then it went to the ball. And by the end of dinner, I just had had enough. Yes. And maybe it's good that you left because afterwards, it's not that things got violent, but uh, the, the crowd was sort of overcome with uh, because there was not sufficient circulation in the room. And some, uh, tell us what happened. 
Yes, this was came second hand because Mrs. Madison and I had left already, but the dancing did go on until midnight. It started promptly at 7, and people were having a wonderful time, but the, the air was so stale because 400 people on that ballroom floor squeezed them in so that they only had about one square foot to move. So some of the ladies began to faint, and they had to take them out. And so In order to rectify the situation for everyone, they tried to open the windows above the doors, but the paint had stuck them shut, so they smashed them open and, and shattered the glass so that the air could come in and revive everyone, which it did. I guess so. But it seems like it ended in kind of disarray, but I suppose they, they had to do it. I think it was probably exciting. <laughs> Very good. Well, President Madison, uh, it's wonderful to hear your presentation. I gather it's the first time you've uh, put it on for a group of people. Is that so? Well, since if, if speaking as my agent, Kyle Jenks, I'll get rid of my Virginia accent. Um, I prepared this presentation over the course of six weeks because it entailed studying 20 years of the man's life, and I uh, debuted it tonight. Well, I wish you great luck with it. Well, thank you. I I think that we can probably get some traction with it. Actor and reenactor Kyle Jenks writes, Men like James Madison were human beings who stepped into the historic milieu to shape a new nation. They were more than the documents they authored, their biographies, or portraits and statues. James Madison, a Virginian, was known to friends and family as Jemmy. Madison was an astute learner, an exceptional statesman. He entered political life in his native Virginia after completing four years of study in just two years at the College of New Jersey, known today as Princeton. It was his short stature and intellectual skills that led to his nickname, Great Little Madison. As a member of the Continental Congress, Madison was the leading author of the United States Constitution. In addition, he was instrumental in drafting the Bill of Rights. To encourage ratification of the Constitution, the Great Little Madison collaborated with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay in writing the Federalist Papers. These were circulated in New York State, where ratification of the new Constitution was in doubt. Later, Madison served in the House of Representatives during the presidencies of George Washington and John Adams. Madison had two terms as Secretary of State for his friend of 50 years, President Thomas Jefferson. At the same time, Madison's vivacious wife, Dolly, occasionally served as a hostess for Jefferson, a widower, when state dinners included wives and his daughters were unavailable. As Secretary of State, Madison supervised the Louisiana Purchase. During his own two-term presidency, Madison dealt with domestic turmoil, international intrigue, and the pitfalls of the War of 1812, which included the British burning the White House. Kyle Jenks, who portrays James Madison, is a native upstate New Yorker, currently living in Boston Lake. He's an actor, writer, director, and producer. He began his journey in historical interpretation as a reenactor of participants in the French and Indian War and American Revolution. With a move to Ohio in 2009, he discovered a theatrical genre called outdoor historical drama. From that was born his Drums Along the Mohawk outdoor drama, about the pivotal struggles in 1777 in the Revolution, most notably in Oriskany. 
The drama is based on the book of the same name, written by Walter D. Edmonds. You can find contact information for Kyle Jenks at the website greatlittlemadison.com. That's greatlittlemadison.com. There are a number of upcoming performances featuring Kyle Jenks as James Madison. To mention one of them, James and Dolly Madison, Dolly portrayed by Alyssa Paulison, will appear at the New York Historical Society at 11 a.m. February 25th in New York City. Located at 77th Street and Central Park West in Manhattan. More information at nyhistory.org. More of the Historian's Podcast in just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore reminding you the 2017 Fund Drive is now underway to support the Historian's Podcast. Your donation at gofundme.com forward slash historians2017 helps cover technical costs and other production expenses. Here's how to donate by mail. Make the check out to Bob Cudmore. Send the check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much. The Historian's Podcast continues. I'm Dave Green. And I'm Bob Cudmore. And Dave, Kyle Jenks, and we've heard Kyle Jenks on the program and also his uh, character, uh, James Madison. Kyle is an actor, uh, as they they say, and he's in this radio drama production that uh, you've been helping out at East Line Studio. Jay Town, a poet and uh, radio drama writer up in Amsterdam, has uh, made a drama called Minutia, which uh, you're airing on uh, all of our uh, web portals or websites, if you will. And Minutia is the story uh, of, a, of a death in Amsterdam, New York, and what happens to the family following that uh, death. And Kyle plays the cop. He's the police officer in this. It is quite an undertaking. I, I, I can't recall the last time I heard anybody put a radio drama together. Well, Jay Town has put several together. I mean, it isn't his first effort in this uh, area. He did it for a while. on uh, Amsterdam, for some time, had a Catholic radio station um, using an FM frequency, and uh, Jay would did a couple of dramas there. But those folks have moved on, so Jay now gets his uh, drama, Minutia, aired on WCSS, and then we repeat the uh, episodes online on all, again, on our, all our various uh, platforms, and uh, I listened to it the other day. I thought it was quite interesting. He, he did a real, he did a real nice job with it, and I, I do want to say that it's the first time I ever had to spell out the word minutia on a piece of paper. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> to keep going well, back, <laughs> did I, is it I and E? What, what is it? Yeah, I wonder uh, if you uh, you got it right. It's a spelling another lesson. Thing, yes. Yeah. Another thing Jay is doing is he's. Uh, kind of getting a group together to try to promote the arts in the eastern Mohawk Valley, you know, the Amsterdam area, um, mainly, I think, with the idea of trying to get some funding from uh, grant sources. He was able to get a grant for his uh, radio drama, I imagine in part because he'd done it before, that, you know, the granting agency that gave him the money, I think it's the Saratoga something-something, 
you know, realized he you know could produce it because he'd he'd done it before. In fact, uh, Audrey and I went to see Minutia being recorded. I believe it was that particular episode, and uh, the one that just uh, aired. And uh, it was interesting to see. I mean, all these um, people up on the stage. You know the different ones would walk up to the microphone and say their piece. Of course, he's got a, a professional sound person who edits uh, the material. Um, and uh, yeah, it's quite a production that he put together. It, it does take a bit of energy. I, you know, I congratulate him for it. Yep, J-Town. And we'll have another episode of Minutia, or the second episode of uh, Minutia, debuting in early March. I wanted to uh, wrap up our program today, the episode of the Historian's Podcast, with with a story from uh, Amsterdam's past. I write about the Amsterdam area, eastern Mohawk Valley, for the Daily Gazette newspaper. And this was uh, recently a column in the Daily Gazette, which uh, was titled, How the Amsterdam Carpet Mills Went to War. It's kind of a story of the home front in uh, World War II. When America entered World War II after the Japanese attack in 1941, the management of Mohawk carpet mills shifted much of the firm's production output from floor coverings to textiles needed for the war effort. Amsterdam had two big carpet mills back in the day, the other being Bigelow Sanford. I've seen you know, uh, information that Bigelow Sanford did the same thing you know, shifted what it was doing to help the war effort. But Mohawk's uh, transformation is better documented because Mohawk carpet took the opportunity afforded by a War Department award in 1943 to explain their wartime manufacturing and a big spread in the newspaper. And the newspaper happened to be the recorder, but, but all the, you know, the information came from uh, Mohawk carpets. Rugs, or carpets, in those days were made primarily from imported wool, a domestic wool being too delicate, according to the Recorder News account. So the Amsterdam mills, before the war started, and even into the early years of the war, which was being fought uh, by other nations, you know, the, uh, the Germans and the Japanese were attacking, but uh, it didn't involve the U.S. yet, but when the even when the war was on, the Amsterdam mills were still importing wool from 35 countries, uh, which were mainly Argentina, India, Great Britain, Ireland, and Iraq, which has kind of been in the news more recently. But the war, of course, kind of hampered the uh, the wool trade. So it was a problem for uh, Mohawk and Bigelow Sanford to keep manufacturing carpets, even if people wanted carpets. But Dave... You've been in the Army. I don't think that the American military has much need for carpets. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't think so. Uh, they would make for good sleeping, I suppose. <laughs> well, but what they did, I, I, didn't, maybe didn't, didn't most just of, didn't logical most of... or something that you know, was uh, you know, a, a given that this would happen. But they decided, or what they did was they made product, you know, textiles, that were of use to the military. And the two things they started weaving in Amsterdam, because they had all these looms, they had the ability to make yarn out of, you know, some kind of raw material. So what the armed forces really needed was a product called cotton duck. 
which is more maybe more often called canvas canvas uh, and duck or cotton duck was used for tents for gun covers and even for work clothes and, and a lot of uh, a lot of uses I, I mean did you run across a canvas in your time in the U.S. Army well, no, day. Bob, it doesn't make any difference if you were in the uh, armed forces or not I'm sure you know canvas canvas is canvas they yeah. still make canvas don't they yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think. Well, Mohawk doesn't ex- exist as a, a mill in Amsterdam anymore. But yes, I think it's it's still made. And so what Mohawk and I presume Bigelow Sanford did was turn their whole operation into making canvas and also using wool, but not to make carpets. They were still a so- domestic source of wool. I presume. I've really not documented that. I don't know if they used imported wool or they used domestic wool i would think that'd be more likely so they would uh, get the uh the cotton ready for the looms on the mohawk uh, spinning machines and they'd also get wool ready for the looms uh, at mohawk and so the carpet some of the carpet mill you know mills or i'm sorry the, some of the carpet looms you know which is how they made carpets in those days were converted to weaving duck while the other looms wove an estimated 10,000 woolen blankets a month, and the mills ran around the clock, making blankets and canvas. I did not know that. And what, and after the war, in fact, they came up, or they, uh, the mill put out a book called Smoke, talking about what the mill had done during the, the war, and it was really kind of poignant or sad, you know, talking about the blankets because, you know, it said, you know, men slept in blankets and men died in blankets. Or, and, and so the, the military did need a lot of blankets. And third, in addition to making the canvas and making the blankets, Mohawk also had a huge machine shop and an iron foundry for building and maintaining its own equipment. And they simply turned their machine shop to other projects. They would do subcontracts that came from gun and other war equipment manufacturers to, to make things you know, out of metal. And the newspaper account in 1943 wrote that government contracts had made it possible for Mohawk to keep its skilled weavers during a time when they otherwise would be laid off because of lack of work. The president of the company then was a man named Howard Shuttleworth, which is, you know, kind of interesting that the head of Mohawk Carpets, that the family name was Shuttleworth, and they owned companies that had looms with shuttles. But Shuttleworth said it was our privilege to serve the boys who were fighting this war. Some 800 Mohawk workers either enlisted or were drafted into the armed forces in World War II. Now, when Mohawk got this award in 1943, uh, actually they received two of them. It's called the E for Excellent Pennant. Uh, they received one of them in March and one in November 1943, and it's a pennant, a big flag. And I don't know what ever happened to it, but they then flew it over the mill in Amsterdam. The November award was kind of low-key, but the award in March was the first one they received from the War Department, was made with great fanfare. The event started with a luncheon at the Elks Club. Then they moved up to what in Amsterdam we used to call the Upper Mill on Forest Avenue. It was technically called the McClary Division of Mohawk Carpets. 
The mayor was there. The mayor at the time was Arthur Carter of Amsterdam. He was master of the ceremonies and it was held outside this big uh, ceremony. Uh, that whole area was uh, badly hit by arson fires after the mills moved out in the 1990s. The Mohawk Mills war bond caravan directed by musician and company official Reginald Harris sang patriotic songs. And among those receiving E for Excellence pins were four mill workers who had been chosen by fellow employees. They kind of won a contest, if you will. And they were Ralph Fabozzi, uh, Ruth Call, Arthur Walsh, and Anna Eckelman. The Navy sent a lieutenant, but the Army sent a brigadier general, a man named Alan Kimball, who was a native of Amsterdam. And uh, Kimball had gone to West Point. He was an infantry captain in uh, World War One. Then he stayed with the Army, and he became, you know, ultimately a brigadier general. After the war, he retired to Amsterdam, became personnel manager of this very carpet company, uh, Mohawk Carpets. And uh, the General Kimball uh, died in Amsterdam in 1951 and is buried at West Point's cemetery. So that's about all the time we have uh, for today's uh, edition of the Historian's Podcast. For Dave Green, this is Bob Cudmore on the Historian's Podcast.